Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. The title and the idea of this talk, The Crucifixion of the Dusk, came to me several years ago when I was going through a particularly dark stage of writing, or rather of not writing my dissertation. Somewhat ironically, I fell into the habit of repeating the phrase to myself whenever I was tempted to write about the crucifixion of the desk rather than about the topic of my dissertation. The phrase also recurred to me in even less dramatic moments because the room in which I was supposed to be writing my dissertation had originally been built as a private chapel and the wooden desk was in the place where the altar would have been. You'll be happy to know that I succeeded in resisting the temptation to research the phrase crucifixion of the desk until just recently, a few years after I'd finished my dissertation and a few months before I was invited to give this talk. I started my research in my customary old school way by asking a handful of smart people who live nearby what they knew about the phrase. After all of my usual sages gave me blank stares, I turned in desperation to chat GPT, <laughs> which unhelpfully told me that the phrase was a metaphor and then gave me a list of study hacks. This talk will not be about study hacks. It will be a description, and a rather long, up-close one, of the activity of studying. But before you decide to take a nap, please know that my primary intention is to give you a description that is useful. My intent is to describe studying in enough detail that you're both convinced that it can greatly assist your growth in the spiritual life, and also able either to begin studying, to adjust how you currently study, or to consciously continue to study in this beneficial way. So perhaps this talk is about a hack after all. Before I begin the description, I'd like to give you a hack for how to endure long-winded speakers, just in case you happen to be in the position of suffering one. The hack is this. Divide everything into endurable chunks and count them as you go. However you choose to hack up, hack up this talk, I have hacked it into five chunks. Each chunk will take up a single question. Collectively, we'll look at one who, three hows, and a why. In the first part, we'll ask, who knows what studying is? In the second, how does studying differ from its imposters? In the third, how does the activity of studying work? And in the fourth, how can we work at studying well? And finally, why are studying and the spiritual life both cruciform? 
Since I've been told that it's good to give people choices, here's an alternate way of posing each question for those of you who either didn't hear or didn't like the earlier list. First, why are all of Sister Anna's sources Dominicans? Second, how does studying differ from spectating, memorizing, or puzzling? Third, what happens in us psychologically when we're trying to figure out what to believe? Fourth, how should we study if we wish to study in a way that increases our union with God? And lastly, how is the crucifixion an image of both studying and living gone right? To whom should we turn if we wish to know what studying is? As you might have guessed from the alternate title, this part will consist mainly of a recognition of my sources. And as you might have guessed from the OP after my name and from the fact that this talk is sponsored by the Thomistic Institute, my sources are primarily St. Thomas Aquinas and A.G. Sertelange. And incidentally, I thought that I had read the phrase crucifixion of the desk from each of these, but now I suspect that I made the phrase up and just repeated it so long that it came to sound medieval, or at least from the 1950s. I realize you don't need an explanation for why I'm drawing on Dominican sources, but I'll prove just how Dominican I am by giving you an explanation anyway. Two, actually. The first and more obvious reason is that I'm a Dominican, and as such, I know the Dominican take on study, both because it's been taught to me and because I've lived it. Badly, no doubt, but nonetheless lived it. And the Dominican take on study, by the way, isn't distinctively Dominican. It's just a very good articulation of a distinctively Catholic approach to study. So if there are any Franciscans in our midst, feel free to hang around. The second reason I'm drawing on Dominican sources has nothing to do with my being Dominican and everything to do with my not trusting the claims of people with ulterior motives. That does need an explanation, and I'll oblige. I'm taking it for granted that people who study have a variety of reasons for doing so. These reasons vary from person to person and even from day to day. Take, for example, Albert or Al for short. Al is a very ordinary graduate student in business who, somewhat like the very hungry caterpillar, has different motives for studying each day of the week. On Monday, Al studies because he desires to get the degree that will allow him to stop studying and start getting paid. On Tuesday, he studies because he fears that if he doesn't, he'll get kicked out of his program. On Wednesday, he studies because thinking about business models is a welcome distraction for him from the irritating personal antics of his classmate, Bert. On Thursday, he studies because he values doing hard things and because he finds studying, as well as taking cold showers and writing with his non-dominant hand, hard. On Friday, he studies because he enjoys being entertained and because studying business models, especially obviously bad ones, is the cheapest entertainment that Al's budget can afford. On Saturday, Al studies because he believes that studying is good and that it would be good even if he didn't want a degree, fear getting kicked out of his program, or wish to avoid Bert, and even if studying wasn't particularly hard or particularly entertaining. 
Suppose we wanted to ask Al what studying is, but that we were allowed to ask him on only one day of the week. We wouldn't ask him on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, since on those days, studying was, for Al, only the means to a further end, not inherently connected with studying. Neither would we ask him on Thursday or Friday, since on those days, Al only cared about one of the aspects of studying, an aspect that he could have just as easily gotten elsewhere. We would ask Al our question on Saturday, because only on this day was Al regarding studying, both in its own right and as a whole. And this, at long last, is why it makes sense to consult Dominicans about the meaning of, of studying. While to be a Benedictine is to live by the motto, ora et labora, pray and work, to be a Dominican is to live by the motto, contemplare et contemplata aliis tradere, to contemplate and to give to others what is contemplated. What each of us exists to do, whether we're Dominican or not, is to know and love each thing as it really is, if we do nothing else in life, we're called to rest our attention on and take delight in God above all else, but also to attend to and to delight in all things in relation to him. Note that the motto is et and not ut. This is to say, Dominicans are not called to contemplate so that we can give others what we've contemplated, but rather to contemplate and to give to others what we've contemplated. Contemplation is good even if it never gets translated into preaching and teaching. That is, even if it's never pursued for a further end. Studying assists us in this task of contemplative delight as the means to contemplation. Studying is the intellectual work that readies us to rest with what we come to understand. St. Dominic took study to be serious work so much so that he regarded it as on par with the manual labor of the Benedictines. Benedictines get their hands dirty, but Dominicans dig into arguments, whether muddied or cut and dry. All this is to say, if Dominicans are what they are meant to be, they ought to be like Al on Saturday. They ought to know, at least experientially, what studying is, what it's for and what it's like. Part two, how does the work of studying differ from other imposter activities? Before answering this question, I'd like to backtrack a little bit and respond to what I suspect everyone's inner teenager is asking. Why do we need to ask who knows what studying is? Why bother hunting down Dominicans studying on Saturday? Doesn't everybody know what studying is? Good question. And like answers to most good questions, the answer here is yes and no. Yes, in that most of us can pick out instances when we're doing what we would call studying, but no, in that we seem to call many different activities by the same word, studying. Consider the following description of our new acquaintance. Al, who is currently studying business, is seated at his desk with an open book, trying to study a particular business model for an upcoming exam. In actuality, he's only studying the shape of the word model, whose meaning he's not registering. 
After a similarly unregistered number of minutes, Al wonders aloud whether the dean of his school might give him permission for an independent study on the relationship between a thing, its model, and its meaning. If we try to give an account of studying that incorporates all these instances, we'll end up with a transcendental. There won't be any human activity that doesn't count as studying. So rooting our account only in the activities that we call studying won't work. I hope that our inner teenagers have been at least partially appeased. I hope uh, that in presenting the question, what is studying in terms of the activities that we don't call studying will be a better approach. I propose, of course, that we ask Al to demonstrate a few of these activities, both because Al is more entertaining than an abstract description and easier to point at. Suppose then that we come across Al mid-semester on an evening when he happens to be moving into the spare, windowless room of Bert's urban apartment. When Al is shown the room, he initially just takes everything in. He notices the length of the bed, the cleverly but unevenly hung Christmas tree lights posing as track lighting, an empty corner just about the size of the foosball table in his parents' basement. Rather than listening to Bert yammering on about his room, Al amuses himself by mentally rearranging the furniture, trying to see in how many places the foosball table might fit. Al snaps to attention though when Bert says, I've gotta go, but let me first tell you how to get to the CIC for the lecture tonight. <laughs> Take a left until you get down to the stairs. Once you're on the street, go south for two blocks, west for two, and then the building will be on your left. Al repeats, left, south for two, west for two, and on my left, You've got it, says Bert, shutting the door on his way out. Question. If Al arrives at the CAC, has he studied? If so, at what point? Let's return to the narrative, focusing this time on Al's internal forum. When Al initially takes in his room, he's engaged in what I would like to call spectating. He's just perceiving the things in the room each of them individually and how they're related in space. Whenever Al turns his attention to one of these things, his imagination spontaneously registers that thing inside what Sertelange calls an effigy, that is an internal representation of the real. Al's imagination produces this effigy spontaneously without his effort and without distracting him from focusing on things. This is to say, as long as Al is spectating, his attention is on the real, where it belongs, and not on the internal effigy of the real. In our scenario, there are a few moments or modes when Al's attention does shift to the internal effigy and not directly on the real. The first moment is when Al begins to mentally rearrange the furniture. He focuses on the parts of the internal effigy and arranges them like a puzzle. His reason for paying attention to the internal effigy in puzzling is to search for possibilities where the foosball table might go. In contrast, in spectating, Al is interested simply in where things are, at the very least, so that he doesn't run into them. And this brings us to a second mode in which Al attends to his internal effigy, namely when he's recalling. Suppose that as soon as Bert leaves, the, leaves and shuts the door, the power goes out. If the room is dark enough, Al will need to recall his internal effigy 
in order to figure out how to navigate the space, in order to get to the door without tripping over his bags or running into the bed. A third mode in which we deliberately attend to our internal effigy is memorizing. Here, we focus on the effigy not simply in order to recall it as it is, but in order to work on it, in order to add something to it, at least temporarily. This is what happens when Al memorizes Bert's directions. He memorizes the sounds of the words, but he also recognizes those words as meaningful because he imaginatively places the words, so to speak, on the streets and stairways of his internal city. Al's imagination has constructed the parts of the apartment complex and city that he hasn't yet seen, but that Bert says exist. A fourth and final mode in which we deliberately attend to our internal effigy is studying. Let's extend the Al and Bert scenario just a little bit. Suppose that after unpacking in the dark for a few moments, Al takes out his flashlight and shines it on a map of the city. He's very old school and doesn't have a cell phone. As he examines the map, he realizes that first, according to the map, Bert's directions would lead him not to the CIC, but to the Christian Science Reading Room. <laughs> the second thing he realizes is that the lecture begins in five minutes. In my book, this is when Al begins to study, and in earnest. He fixes his attention on the internal effigy, specifically on the part of the effigy that connects the two things that he knows exist, his room and the CIC. He fixes his attention on this part because it's inactionable. It can't be acted upon. It's at best incomplete and at worst incorrect. Incomplete because he hasn't yet seen for himself what's really there and incorrect because he's heard conflicting descriptions of what might be there, both how Bert says it is and what the map shows, what to do. Let's suppose that Al is the kind of person who isn't easily discouraged and who doesn't waste time, care to waste time or be late. This is to say, let's suppose that Al refuses either to give up and stay home in the dark or to navigate the city by trial and error. Al's only option is to examine the proposed routes against each other and to choose the one that he believes will get him to the CIC and quickly. Let's give Al a break and try to schematize and summarize what's just been displayed in this narrative. At any given moment, our attention is fixed, either in a mode of spectating, puzzling, recalling, memorizing, studying, or acting. Some of these modes involve an initial construction of an internal effigy, and some of them involve the manipulation of a part of an existing effigy. The effigy's primary role is to represent the real as it is, so that we might interact with the real as it is. Insofar as we interact with realities that are both spatial and spiritual, the effigy of the real within us must also be both spatial and spiritual. Spiritual realities, like spatial realities, are related to each other in definite ways. And to be human is to be interested and invested in those relations. We regard some spiritual realities, some judgments, to be like walls, others like picture frames, and still others to be like dungeons or basement floors. 
When we study, we deliberately attend to our internal effigy of these spiritual realities, focusing on the aspects of the effigy that are either incomplete or in conflict. We focus on these aspects in hope of completing them and resolving them, that is, in hope of representing the realities as they are. Unlike spectating, puzzling, recalling, and memorizing, studying is uniquely concerned with working out the way things are. This is what I take St. Thomas to mean when he defines study as vehemens applicatio mentis ad aliquid, the vehement application of the mind to something. Whenever we are concertedly attending to things with the aim of coming to see how they are, we are studying. Part three, how does studying work? Let's return to Al, whom we last saw in a lurch, or rather, whom we last saw studying, vehemently applying his mind to the problem of conflicting claims about the spatial relationship between the windowless room in apartment B and the CIC. Let's shift though from talking about spatial problems to talking about spiritual problems. That is to the problem of conflicting or confusing claims about non-spatial relationships. How does studying work out this problem? Let's ask Al to give one final demonstration and then set to work on determining what the work of studying involves. Suppose Al, now safely back in his windowless room, is giving himself a break from his formal studies with a little light reading on Pelagianism. As he reads, he begins to squirm a bit in his chair. He drinks another cup of coffee, rearranges his sock drawer, and returns to his chair, only to find himself zoning out again and again. In desperation, he kneels down, looks at the band on his wrist, and mutters to himself, what would Jesus do? After a few moments, still kneeling, he tentatively says, Jesus, what do you want to do in me? And then he asks, Jesus, what do you want to do in me? W-W-D-A-D. <laughs> what work did Al do? I'll stop trying to be cute and say straightforwardly. Every act of studying involves three moments. First, the moment of noticing that there is a problem. Second, the moment of articulating what that problem is. And third, the moment of responding to that problem. Each of these might be called a work rather than a moment. I know I'm overusing the word work, and even if it's irritating, I still hold that the word work is appropriately applied to study. The word reveals something of the nature of studying, both as a whole and its parts. It resonates with Thomas's word vehemence, as well as our experience of the effort involved in studying. It also implies that study has its own dynamism. It's inherently oriented to the resolution of a problem. Study is the work of attending to problems that's inherently oriented to our resting with the resolution of those problems. The work that remains to be done in this part of the talk is to examine the three moments of work that comprise the overall work of studying. 
But so we don't get lost in abstractions, I'll start off by pointing to each moment in Al's experience. The first moment of studying is noticing that there is a problem. The first thing that Al notices are his own behaviors. He notices that he's squirming, arranging his sock drawer, or zoning out. If Al wishes to study and not to squirm, arrange socks, or zone out, he needs to work to notice what gave rise to these behaviors. The behaviors, in other words, are symptoms. If Al succeeds in doing that work, digging for the cause of his behavior, he would notice, secondly, beneath each behavior, some passion. In Al's case, the, the behaviors of frustration, procrastination, and zoning out are perhaps caused by anger, fear, and sorrow. But these inclinations, these passions, in turn arise from something deeper. Every passion is a response or a symptom of what we have perceived. So if Al is committed to studying, he'll turn his attention to see what he has perceived that gave rise to his passions of anger, fear, sorrow, or what have you. Even if Al were to be interrupted in this task, he still would have achieved something significant. Simply in noticing his behaviors and their underlying passions, he's noticed that he's perceived something problematic. It should be obvious to you now why even the noticing aspect of studying is appropriately called work, since we tend to bury even the signs that there's a problem. We, if we wish to find the problem, we need to be willing to dig. The second moment of studying is articulating what the problem is. After Al notices that he has perceived something problematic, he turns his attention to wherever he supposes the problem lies. In Al's case, he turned his attention to the anti-Pelagian teachings of St. Augustine, which seemed to conflict somehow with his own Pelagian beliefs. He turned his attention, we might say, to the place in his internal effigy where there was an impossible M.C. Escher-like design. Two staircases, one Pelagian, one Augustinian, competing for the same space. Al begins the work of articulating the problem when he puts words to these competing claims, when he puts labels, as it were, on the conflicting staircases. He labels one staircase, what would Jesus do, and the other, what do you want to do in me? Putting the problem into speech doesn't remove the problem. It does, however, reduce it. Here's what I mean. When we articulate something, when we name something, we put a boundary between it and everything else. Even if we've drawn the boundary incorrectly, the fact that there is a boundary allows us to focus here rather than everywhere, or here on this smaller place rather than here in this general area. Perhaps you've noticed that throughout this talk, I've drawn, drawn boundaries around its parts, subparts, and so on. Even if this has seemed to you like micromanaging, it has still allowed you to focus your attention on a part of the talk and not on the unimaginably long whole. And speaking of drawing boundaries around parts, let's move on to the third moment of studying. For Al, the work of responding to the problem begins as soon as he has articulated the problem, just enough for him to see precisely where the conflict lies. 
Al reaches this point as soon as he recognizes that what would Jesus do and what do you want to do in me, Jesus, can't occupy the same space in his internal effigy. As soon as Al sees both that there is a problem and what the problem is, there are only three ways he can respond. He can either choose to fight it, that is, to continue to study, to look for some resolution. He can choose to flee from it, that is, stop looking either at the conflict or for a resolution and just turn his attention to something else. Or he can choose neither to fight nor to flee, but rather to stand still, to continue to look at the conflict, but not look for a resolution. This sounds dramatic, but I think it's a drama that plays itself out in us when we're actually studying and not engaging in something less demanding, like memorizing, puzzling, or spectating. What I'm suggesting here is that every act of studying, regardless of what we are studying or why, always involves the recognition, articulation, and response to something in need of a, of a resolution. This is to say, there's always something for us to do in studying. Studying demands of us First, a radical openness to notice what we haven't previously noticed. Second, the courage to name what we haven't previously named. And third, the prudence to know when to continue looking and naming, when to look away, and when to rest. For those of you who are growing a bit weary, either with the amount of ground I'm trying to cover, with my corny owl examples, or with my tendency to count, I have three pieces of good news. <laughs> First, in the next section, my intent is to get practical regarding the ground that we've already covered. Second, from this point on, I'll give only non-Al and Bert examples. And third, this is the second to last section. Section four, how can we study well? In the phrase study well, well can mean at least two different things. On the one hand, it can mean nothing more than successfully moving through each of the three moments identified in the previous section. We study well whenever we notice, articulate, and respond to problems and don't get stuck in one moment or get so exhausted by our efforts that we give up and rearrange our sock drawer again. My informal observations, both of myself and others, suggest that while many of us study, few of us study well in this first sense of well. So before revealing the other meaning of well and studying well, I'd like to offer a few non-exhaustive and hopefully not too exhausting suggestions for how we might grow in our ability to notice, articulate, and respond well. And for those of you who are still counting, I'll give four tips for each of the three activities. Four things to do if we wish to notice well. First, whenever you set out to study, don't move your attention from one thing to another until you have somehow placed each thing in your imagination. When we read a word, a sentence, or a paragraph with attention, we imagine each part and how the parts are related. It's in the act of placing things in our imagination that we dispose ourselves to notice both how things are and how they aren't related. 
We often skip over the act of placing things in our imaginations, not only because placing things takes effort, but also because we fool ourselves into thinking we've paid attention simply because we're able to repeat a phrase or because we understand the phrase's parts. Something like this happens when you're trying to make an omelet and someone calls and you don't have the courage to say that you can't multitask, so you pretend to pay attention. Yeah, I'm listening. You're going to the store and then you're going to the gym. In this case, you're attending to not the conversation, but rather just to the sound of the words, memorizing them for just long enough for you to be able to crack an egg. A second thing that you can do in order to grow in your ability to notice well is to presume that whatever you are studying matters. Presume, that is, that you care about what you're studying, but that you haven't fully uncovered just how. We tend not to notice things unless they either advance or, or threaten something that we care about. I always noticed squirrels because when I was growing up, a punk squirrel ate his way into our attic. Even now, I'm still on high alert, even though I haven't lived in a house with an attic for over 20 years. We also tend not to notice things unless we're looking for them as a kind of an answer to a question that we're already asking. If we approach a text and don't yet care about it, we can heighten our ability to notice what's in the text by presuming that the text either advances or threatens what we care about, and then by looking for how this is the case. A third tip for noticing well is to approach the activity of looking as something to be enjoyed and not merely as a task to be gotten over with. This is challenging since we live in a culture that's addicted to bullying and being bullied by deadlines, but it's not impossible. It's just up to each of us individually to figure out where we can draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to enjoy this while the rest of the world goes on being and trying to be efficient. Simone Weil has a beautiful description of what it's like to enjoy waiting to notice something. Quote, there is a special way of waiting upon truth, she says, setting our hearts upon it, yet not allowing ourselves to go out in search of it. There's a way of giving our attention to the data of a problem in geometry without trying to find a solution. A way of waiting when we are writing for the right word to come of itself at the end of our pen while we merely reject all inadequate words." Close quote. The danger if we refuse to adopt this posture of enjoyment and persist in our task-oriented mindset is that our powers of, of noticing will atrophy to anger the aesthetes out there in mixed metaphors, our attention is capable of focusing both like a, like a spotlight and like a floodlight. If we always only ever use the spotlight, looking for the one thing we need so that we can move on, our floodlight will grow dim and we'll notice less and less, even that we're not noticing. A fourth tip for noticing well is to say no to activities that train you in passivity. Sometimes if, we're exhausted, if we've exhausted ourselves by using the spotlight function too much, 
We give ourselves over to activities that don't require us to actively attend to anything. We settle down only to be entertained in a way that requires us neither to imagine nor to think, but only to be passive in the face of an external barrage of images and ideas. As often as your duty permits, say no to activities that scatter and weaken your attention in this way. And as often as you must engage in these activities, do so in a way that you actively resist becoming passive. Four things to do if we wish to articulate well. First, whenever possible, don't begin by using other people's words. When you notice a problem, whether the problem is a contradiction or a lack of clarity, strive first to divide up the problem and label it as you see it. The appeal, of course, in turning to dictionaries, guidebooks, or chat GPT, is that these sources relieve us of the labor of dividing and labeling. The risk that comes from outsourcing these tasks, in addition to the atrophying of our ability to do them, is that the divisions and labels that we import don't adequately express what we originally saw. If we adopt other people's divisions and labels, we'll likely end up conforming our insights to these preconceptions, rather than using them as a foundation for new concepts. A partial remedy for those of us who are adept at or addicted to relying on the language of others is to supply our imaginations with many different ways of seeing, many different languages, as it were. Read fantasy, poetry, and also the occasional scientific journal. If you have in your imagination four ways that you could divide up and describe a problem, you'll be freer to choose the one that fits best or do something entirely different. Second, and relatedly, occasionally stop trying to articulate and just live. Living, and by this I mean just not studying, like reading fantasy, poetry, and the occasional journal, will give you analogies that you can use for articulating. Living will also give you a rest from concentrating on the problematic parts of your internal effigy. This is good because, in the words of Sertelange, perpetual studying will incline you to look at your neighbor as though he is a proposition in a syllogism. Resting from studying and directing our attention to the real is also good for studying itself. The effigy is grounded only in the real. If we seldom rest our eyes on the real, we'll start to use the effigy itself as a ground. And then we wouldn't be Thomists. Third, in order to articulate well, look beside, beneath, and beyond the problem. In studying, just as in living, we learn best where boundaries are by crossing over them. We learn what a healthy amount of sleep means only when we discover not only how much sleep is too little and too much, but also what we must do in order to sleep the, amount, the right amount and how we feel when we get that amount. So when we're trying to articulate a problem, try viewing it in relation to what's beside, beneath, and beyond it. Fourth, in order to articulate well, do use other people. This is to say, 
When you're trying to articulate a problem, do so out loud, not just into a voice recorder and not to chat GPT, but in the presence of someone who is capable of asking you questions whose answers you don't already know. Many of us avoid doing this because it's embarrassing to have someone witness our bumbling and because oftentimes a suitable listener isn't available, but we should do it nonetheless. It's helpful both as a check on our articulations and as a refinement of them. You can't be certain whether you've drawn a boundary or not unless you can lead someone else to draw it. And the questions of others can alert you to where you need to divide more refinely or differently. Four things we can do if we wish to respond well. Recall that once we've articulated a problem, there are only three logically possible responses. We can fight it by continuing to look for a resolution. We can flee it by giving our attention over to something else. Or we can neither fight nor flee, but stand still. The four tips I have here for responding well concerned how we are to make the decision among these three. Each tip begins with don't. First, don't hand the decision over to your feelings. Fighting when you want to, fleeing when you don't want to fight, and standing still when you're not sure what you want. Real discernment involves knowledge of your wants, but it's far more than this. Second, don't assume that you should fight every conflict that you successfully notice and articulate. Every should comes from somewhere. This should comes from a spirit of workaholism, which can manifest itself as much in mental work as in external busyness. Just because you notice a problem doesn't mean that you should bother articulating it. And just because you've articulated a problem doesn't mean that you should try to fix it. Third, don't fight if doing so would compromise your ability to attend to what your state in life obliges you to attend to. Being curious about and capable of thinking things through isn't a sufficient reason to do so. St. Thomas calls the tendency to study anything that suits our fancy curiositas, and he classifies it as the vice that opposes the virtue of studying well, studiositas. Fourth, don't flee thinking through a problem if doing so would compromise your ability to attend to what your state and life obliges you to attend to. Studying requires courage. Without courage, we'll exhaust ourselves in fighting our urge to give up when the going gets tough. Studying also requires long suffering, the willingness to endure the fight when we've resolved not to give up. At this point, you might be asking, what are we fighting for again? And why are we bothering to study in the first place if it's going to require courage and long suffering and avoiding curiositas? Is it just for the sake of building up these virtues in us? If you are asking these questions, and you kind of are since I just now put them into your heads, you'll be pleased to know that an answer, or at least the beginning of an answer, is on its way. Up to now, the description I've been giving of studying and of studying well 
is something that would be unobjectionable and perhaps even attractive to an atheist. I say this in part as a matter for each of our personal examination. If the description I've given of studying corresponds exactly to what you do or what you strive to do, recognize that you study as a practical atheist, even if what you're studying is a Christological heresy. This is to say, if your belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doesn't have any bearing on how you study, you're leading a double life. Your study life, and then the life in which your baptism does make a difference in how you do things. To put it differently, if how you study doesn't foster your spiritual life, you're missing out on gold. So, how do you study in a way that fosters your spiritual life? How do you study well in this second full sense of well? My thesis is this. If we approach each of the three moments of study with an openness to the movement of the Holy Spirit within us, the very act of studying will deepen our spiritual life, both while we study and afterwards. Studying, in other words, isn't a hack into the spiritual life, but an intrinsic part of it. How so? I take our spiritual life to be nothing other than our life insofar as it is directed to God, by God, with whom we cooperate. Spiritual life, so understood, includes our conscious acts of prayer and moral choices, but isn't restricted to these. It's not so much the totality of what I offer to God as the totality of my openness to what God offers to do in me. The point of the spiritual life is to let Christ live out his earthly life anew in me, to let him rejoice in, sorrow over, struggle with, and see not only me, but also all other things in me and with me. We have the opportunity in each of the three moments of studying, each time we study, either to renew our openness to God's acting in and with us, or to rely exclusively on our own powers. In studying, we experience and rehearse either surrender or self-reliance. Accordingly, surrender is the one tip I have for studying well in the second sense. That is, for studying in a way that advances our union with God, even if we're studying business models. What I mean by surrender is nothing more than an explicit and ongoing invitation to God to do in and through us whatever he desires. But since I think we, we can think surrender is a great idea and yet have no idea how to do it, let me suggest what surrender might look like for each of the three moments of study. In noticing... Invite the Holy Spirit to direct your attention wherever he desires. Trust that he receives your invitation, even if you don't immediately notice anything, or if the things you notice overwhelm you. In articulating, open your imagination to the Holy Spirit. Invite him to be present in your imagination 
even in the parts that you can't see. Invite him to draw out of your memory anything he desires. In responding, don't make a rule for yourself how you will respond to what you see. Even what the Holy Spirit has inclined you to in the past should never be made into a rule. Make your only rule to say, into your hands I commend my spirit. Conclusion. Why are studying and the spiritual life both cruciform? In the introduction, I suggested that an alternate title of this final section might be How the Crucifixion is an Image of Studying Gone Right. That alternate title, as it turns out, isn't such a bad answer. Studying matters because in it, we encounter the cross. And because ultimately, the only thing that matters is how we respond to the cross. We grow in union with God precisely to the extent that we allow Jesus to renew in us his self-offering to the Father. And understanding this crucial dynamic of studying can prepare us to yield to the Holy Spirit's promptings within. At the risk of making this profound truth appear as complicated as my own frantic mind, I'd like to press the question a bit more. Hopefully it's clear to you why studying matters, but perhaps it's not clear why this talk has mattered. Hasn't everything that I've said here been said before and better by others? In other words, haven't I done a bit of plagiarizing? There are three people whose work you might suspect I've nabbed in this talk. So in this closing session, I'd like to try to clear my name in two cases and own up to my crime in one. First, haven't I plagiarized here the advice of Jordan Peterson? Peterson urges us to respond to conflict by standing straight, making our beds, and by allowing ourselves to be nailed to the cross. That is, by allowing the part of us that is sinful to die, thereby identifying ourselves exclusively with the Christ-like parts within us. I haven't plagiarized this. This is Pelagianism, albeit in a very attractive Kantian Jungian clothing. It's not an abstraction or a Christ-like part of me that consents to die, but Christ, truly other than me and yet truly in me by the sheer gift of God. Second, haven't I plagiarized here the memory palace of the 16th century Jesuit, Venerable Matteo Ricci? Ricci won access to the Chinese elite by wowing them with his ability to memorize perfectly and quickly random sequences of Chinese characters. Ricci's mnemonic technique, which he taught to the Chinese, was to construct a palace in his memory where he would deliberately place whatever he wanted to recall. Have I plagiarized a Jesuit? No. The effigy that I've described in this talk, there's some superficial similarities to Ricci's memory palace, but there are three differences worth noting. First, the memory palace is a deliberate construction through and through, while the effigy of the real appears in us, at least initially, spontaneously as something received. Secondly, the sole purpose of constructing a memory palace is to assist us in recalling words, 
while the primary purpose of working on an internal effigy is to assist us to love. We can't love what we don't believe is real, and we can't help but love what we perceive to be real. Third, the memory palace as a whole is useful to us only because of what we place inside it, while the internal effigy is useful to us only insofar as it represents the whole of what exists, from its lofty heights to its first foundations. This being said, there is one aspect in which I hope that I've plagiarized Ricci's palace. When Ricci taught the Chinese to construct their own memory palaces, he insisted that they place at the center of their palace a cross. Ricci wanted to give the Chinese an image of the cross, even if they didn't yet know its meaning. I, of course, haven't told you how to construct your internal effigies, but I have tried to paint with my own words an image of studying that is cruciform. The experience of conflicting beliefs, that is, of being pulled in opposite directions and not knowing how to yield, has the same shape, the same form as a cross. The magnitude of the cross of Christ, of course, was incomparably greater than anything we will encounter in study. But it seems to me that the shape is the same nonetheless. Third and last, haven't I plagiarized here the author of scripture? St. John, under the impulse of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the word spoken by the Father before time began is the same word through which the world and all of us in this, this room came to be. The word was spoken over us and into us at baptism. The word is thus the archetype of all that is real. And to know this word is to have within us a perfect icon of the real. I take St. John and the Holy Spirit to be saying this. We grow in the spiritual life. We grow in union with God, not principally because we have done the work of studying to establish the word in us, nor because we have worked to speak that word to others, but because we allow the word to become incarnate in us, to speak through us, and finally to surrender himself in us to the Father. I hope I have plagiarized this. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.